fellow citizens. Let's, let's be let's be, be bluntly honest. Who's the heavyweight champion of the world? In my opinion, still and perhaps always will be the greatest. There's so much there. Okay, yeah. What are we doing, great champion? You help to unite our nation. The cry for freedom has only sport to pay attention to the voices that are doing the framing. What we're talking about is the consumerism. Withheld and allotted only. Nobody's, 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 nobody's calling LeBron Black Jesus. Welcome back to Sports and Society for June 21st. We took a week off last week. Kyle, you were at the beach, man. How was it? The beach was good, but I was just thinking to myself, I don't want to talk about coronavirus the whole time, but... <laughs> It seemed to mark uh, my experience there in watching sports and just in general. So being in South Carolina where there was a spike uh, towards the end of our time there kind of caused a little bit of hesitation and a little bit of anxiety. And then as sports were coming back, it seemed to be the reason to watch in a lot of ways. Uh, It was true for when Bundesliga came back and then now as other sports are starting to trickle back in it seemed to be like what was drawing me or compelling me in addition to the enjoyment of just kind of watching sports again Mm -hmm. but yeah how about you well it's interesting you know we're we're looking at going close to where you were in two weeks from now and uh, the numbers I think are interesting because they kind of emphasize how much we have to play everything by the ear at this point I mean something we kind of I kind of gotten okay with doing it and now I don't know where I'm going to be a week and a half from now um so it's all I think fluid and I think that speaks to the situation we see right now and perhaps why I haven't had very much interest in watching sports because I don't find it to be very much of a distraction from the other stuff that's going on. I mean, in some ways it's so glaringly different that it's almost an emphasis of the the rest of things. So, you know, um, to turn into a Bundesliga or an EPL game and to see no one in the stands um, is almost more jarring and emphasizes what a weird situation we're at. And I have to confess that I, I think there's something missing from an energy perspective that makes me not as compelled to watch it. Um, and then to see something like, you know, Nick Watney uh, getting mm-hmm. sick this week uh, and putting paid to all the golf stuff. And, you know, golf is perhaps in the best position to be able to move forward. And yet I found myself watching and being like, hmm, I just don't really – don't really care. Um, yeah. And I think it's it's so, you know, this is, um, it's such a different context here in the U.S. versus these other places. So I think that, like, if I were living uh, in England or Germany or wherever, I think I'd have a different feeling about it. Um, mm-hmm. Just because they've got a better handle on things. They've been able to share mass communication. They're better behaving uh, about these things, whereas the U.S. were still clearly don't have a clue how to handle this um so for our sports to come back on the same timetable as them seems so premature in many levels yeah i was just struck by the the idea of playing things by ear and how well it kind of gets into our main topic this week of discussing unions and sports Mm -hmm. and their role and their power but it what it seemed Major League Baseball was close this week. And then just yesterday, there being a spike uh, in the last few days in Arizona and Florida, where most of spring training and a lot of the games were set to take place, kind of led to the ML, uh, the players' union saying, we're going to just 
hold on everything right now. We had to see the Phillies had eight folks uh, at least, right? So, I mean, and some Mm -hmm. of the other teams are not announcing it, but have, uh, I think it's pretty clear some of the other teams have some folks too. Mm -hmm. And other sports experience the same thing. College football with, I think there were 23 cases on Clemson's campus. Mm -hmm. Um, LSU shut down stuff too, yeah. So, I, I, there's part, it, by none of us know. But gosh, it left me with a hunch that a lot of this uh, attempt to come back is going to be more fraught than uh, those trying to make it happen. We're thinking, and with this, again, with the spike in Florida, it means a, uh, a whole new reevaluation for the NBA, I think. Um, so, yeah, it's all playing it by ear. And I, I will say that I really enjoyed watching golf. Um, there was, there was something about, I, maybe wrongly, uh, I, I like was able to turn it, turn off the outside world for a little bit. Hmm. And so watching golf the last couple of weeks was, I found, uh, therapeutic in a way. And I'm willing to admit that may not be a good thing, but, uh, nonetheless, just watching competitive golf again, uh, was really enjoyable for me, but then it, took a hit when Nick Wantney tested positive and it's, it was a slow trickle of information out about that, which really bothered me that we didn't know right away why Nick Wantney withdrew. Everyone suspected it, but it really wasn't until a day or two later. Yeah, I mean, that, they, they told his playing partners on after nine yeah. holes, like you can't do that. Either tell them before mm-hmm. the round or don't tell them until after the round. You can't do that. Yeah. 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 So, We'll see, but um, one thing I, I wanted to point out, though, that like I was saying, that I was kind of watching just to see how it all was being handled. In addition to coronavirus, was um, the fight for racial justice in America that's mm-hmm. happening at the same time, and it's it's kind of would I feel would be difficult to overstate the importance of uh, athletes mm-hmm. in how we're viewing it, how we're understanding it, and how progress is being achieved. Um, So Harold Varner um, is a golfer on the PGA Tour. Uh, He's one one of the only African-American golfers on tour, but uh, he was in the lead after the first round, uh, not this past week, but the week before. Kind of went a lot of the, it, it was a real spike in interest, obviously. I was super interested in how golf was going to cover it. And it was, I I can't think of many words to describe it other than just kind of despicable from my perspective, how they went about it. They somehow managed to make it a feel good story Mm. as if to kind of alleviate all the discomfort that should be there and all of the reckoning that should be happening. There was absolutely none of that. And while that was predictable, it was it was still really disturbing. Maybe even more disturbing because it was predictable that they they would engage with the story because it was impossible not to. But the extent to which they did it was um, anything but anti-racist. And in fact, I 
I felt, a white man, that it was racist, that their coverage was extremely exploitative and racist. And Harold Varner couldn't take a step anywhere without media asking him some stupid question about like what he's feeling and what he's thinking and does he feel like he's playing for more than just himself. It was it, it was hard to watch. It, it was really quite despicable. And so now even as I'm processing out loud, putting that alongside my enjoyment <laughs> Um, causes me to question like how I should be watching golf going forward literally just because of how they handled that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was really um, kind of pathetic in my opinion. Hmm. Well, I mean, it's we're in a weird world when NASCAR is leading the way on how we should handle these things. I mean, it's yeah. just a, a kind of a shocking turn of events but shows the power that uh, – I think you're right that athletics has in this situation, uh, perhaps to a fault, I think I would argue. Um, but I think it's it has been a very powerful tool and, and shouldn't be understated how important it is in this current light. If only because I think in some ways it is, as much as it shouldn't be the case, um, it's one of the few ways that we allow people of color to have powerful voices. Um, you know, whether it be... Uh, 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 you know anything else we just don't see that but in the sports world we we allow these folks um these people of color to have that platform and it's something we should allow everywhere but um you know it's uh, it's really i have to give them a ton of credit because it's not what they signed up for necessarily by being in a professional sports capacity but uh so many of them have risen to the to the challenge and to the point uh i i uh it's a it's a pretty powerful situation yeah there's a lot to be inspired by i think and uh, it i find myself using the platform of athletes as a place to take cues in a lot of situations and in particular like you were saying with nascar bubba wallace saying there shouldn't be confederate flags at races or anywhere in nascar I think from an outside perspective, it's easy to underestimate how significant of a thing that was Mm -hmm. uh, because I think for a lot of the outside world, meaning outside of NASCAR, it's like, oh, yeah, of course, right? Like worldwide, it would be like if you took a worldwide Gallup poll, a lot of people would be like, yeah, of course, that's crazy. Uh, Inside NASCAR, that's revolutionary. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is very few hubs of racism that make themselves so public as they do in NASCAR. And so for Bubba Wallace to come out and say that, and then within 48 hours, there being a policy that says no more Confederate flags at races, that's truly revolutionary. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I think it will be important and valuable to pay attention to how that ripples out. Um, because if we've learned anything in America's history, it's that uh, <laughs> racism might be covered up by public policy, but th- it doesn't go anywhere. Um, in some cases, it just festers and grows stronger. So uh, it- it'll be w- interesting to watch how NASCAR moves forward with that. Mm-hmm. But. Mm. Uh, let's uh, let's take. I want to transition to our main topic now because I think it's very relevant. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, you know, I think one of the things that I've been following the most with this is um, 
the NBA stuff, uh, because of course we had all the pandemic conversations going on and we felt like we got to a place which I think has all been turned on its head by what's happened in the last week, just in terms of the pandemic stuff. But, um, it's been really interesting to follow the, um, dialogue that has kind of been put forward by Kyrie Irving. And I did not expect myself to be saying complimentary things of Kyrie Irving, particularly Mm -hmm. often on this podcast. Um, but I have to give him credit for bringing up this conversation of, um, you know, maybe we don't play because there's bigger things to be focused on right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a lot, a lot to unpack there in terms of, um, you know, this particular situation. There, there doesn't seem to be a uh, Kyrie didn't seem to present a plan for what to do, which is uh, uh, a little disappointing. But I think it's uh, he's raised a, a massive conversation that I think uh, I really have to say kudos to him for bringing that to the forefront. Uh, uh, in the way that it happened. Hmm. It, it strikes me as uh, t- to connect our mission with Kyrie in this in this way is one of the central questions being, should we be playing? Mm-hmm. Like, what a question to ask. And it, it's something that any observer of the sports industrial complex in the United States were you to ask it, 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 it sets you apart so astoundingly mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of ways, right? It's um, the, the whole complex preaches that, of course, you should be doing this. And not only that, you should be doing it bigger and better uh, and it, it expanding at every opportunity. So to even broach the question and put it out there, um, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a surefire way to set yourself apart. What was, what was the reaction so it's been interesting. It's been varied. Uh, and I think it's, you know, to take a step back, it's been an interesting conversation just in terms of Kyrie as a mouthpiece for it. So kind of the, you know, um, uh, you know, we mentioned this on our last podcast. I got a little heated about this in some ways, perhaps more than I usually do, which is not very much still. But, um, you know, this idea of um, just because someone has a uh, checkered, history of being someone you want to follow doesn't mean we had, we should throw away their points. And I think that that's true here. Like there's all kinds of weird stuff. Like Kyrie's been, I mean, he's a VP of the MBPA. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so he's been in on every conversation has never brought this concern up. As far as we can tell, that's not been something he's brought up. And indeed in a conversation, like the day before this came out, he was ta- asking league officials about whether he could come to Orlando as a, uh, injured uh, supporter or whether you know they'd be able to have access to certain uh, mm-hmm. beverages or whatever it may be in the facilities and these kind of things and then a couple of days later there's this stand where he has a conference call with 80 players um, and makes this statement about how he's he doesn't feel like it's a situation where we should be playing right now uh, and then he even goes perhaps too far and talks about um you know, how nobody's, there's only a few guys getting paid in the NBA and, you know, maybe they should think about ways to take back more power there. And it's, you know, I'm never going to fault players for fighting for more money, but, uh, you know, that convolutes the message in some ways and it makes it a little more difficult. But I think the core of his comment about there's more important things to think about right now remains an essential conversation and we have to give him a ton of credit 
for bringing it up. And we've seen, uh, in terms of reaction, you know, kind of the biggest uh, thing has been, you know, Dwight Howard came out in support of him, and LeBron has kind of dismissed it and said, we're going to play. Uh, and so uh, there's a fun tweet from Pat Beverly where it says, you know, this is all fun, but when the King says we're going to play, we're going to play. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. But there's a whole other conversation there about how, you know, I think Kyrie has spoken up for a bunch of players that weren't comfortable going back, but it's such a star driven league that they weren't necessarily comfortable speaking up for themselves. So he may not be the ideal spokesman, but he was the one that was willing to say something now, mm-hmm. um, which is super powerful. Uh, and then to uh, to the biggest thing is in some ways been you know one of his former teammates um, Kendrick Perkins has gone at him a couple of times on ESPN and KD has gone back at Kendrick Perkins and so it's uh, it's been an interesting dialogue um, about uh, you know what's going on and Kendrick had, Perkins had uh, some really blazing things to say about how Kyrie has become the distraction uh, right now and stuff like that, which was interesting. I, uh, and just, I, I think it's a, um, a, a window in some ways into how sticky some of these conversations are. There is no, um, clear answer and that you're, uh, these, that you need a diversity of activism in some ways to get to the place where you need to go at the end of the day, because, uh, too much, too much homogeneity is how we got in this situation to begin with. Mm-hmm. So this is where it gets one of the central aspects of unions and sports that gets really interesting for me is this dynamic and this relationship between players, owners, players and commissioners, and then players and fans. And then how all of those are in uh, the soup together, so to speak. And how the dynamics play out in that space, in particular the power dynamics, is really fascinating to think about. And I think to illuminate what is interesting about it, it's possible to hone in on the role of a spokesperson Mm. and kind of what you were saying about who is saying what and what effect it is having. So like Pat Beverly's tweet is so prescient and like to the point, like if LeBron says we're playing, we're playing. And so I'm thinking now about unpacking that and saying like, what is to the point about that? And I think it's that LeBron James has amassed such a popular following and has such a uh, gargantuan presence in society that really what Pat Beverly is saying is that the person with the uh, most power in swaying public opinion has spoken, right? It's not LeBron James as an individual, maybe, as much as it is his Instagram following. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, that's what Adam Silver and the owners are beholden to, is what those Instagram, those like, however, I think he's got like 40 or 50 million followers or something like that. Like that is, uh, that's where the power is. But LeBron James can seize that power and has that reach and has that effect. And so in that way, it is this dynamic. But when you break it down, I wonder if like the real center point is who can sway public opinion. And to kind of add a layer to it, what gets interesting, even more interesting to me is that I like contrasting the NBA with Major League Baseball 
and how NBA was seemingly able to like make this work better than anybody else, at least so far. And Major League Baseball seems to be the farthest from making it work. And I wonder if it has something to do with the fact that there is not a seminal voice in baseball mm. in the sense that the owners don't have to fear a LeBron James and they, they don't have to fear one player or one voice or even a small cohort of voices having the effect uh, on a society like LeBron James can and therefore awards the owners a lot more power. Um, hmm. Because I, if Mike Trout comes out and says I'm not playing, yes, he's he's important and he's probably like top ten most important baseball players and has like top ten power amongst players. But compared to LeBron James, that's nothing mm -hmm. in my opinion, right? Like Mike Trout's not pushing culture. <laughs> LeBron James is pushing culture, uh, for better or worse. Mm -hmm. And so in that way, like how and why NBA players have been able to amass uh, cultural relevancy and Major League Baseball players have not uh, seems to be what's hurting them. Uh, and even further, it, there's, I, I think, kind of whiffs and rumors that the union is kind of falling, falling apart in baseball over mm -hmm. all of this and that there's a really good chance that the union's going to split, which is... Uh, a nightmare for a union <laughs> you're no longer a union if you if you don't have solidarity well yeah i think and that's one of the most fascinating parts for me because you mentioned you know there's the players the fans and the owners of these three dynamics but really you know i mean there's the uh, the players and the players union are different entities and we've seen a mm -hmm. number of times throughout history that the players have denied what the players' union has uh, worked out on their behalf. Um, it's, it's not an uncommon occurrence for that to be the case. And that's even what we're seeing here in some ways. I mean, Kyrie coming out and talking uh, over the the agreement that the union has kind of uh, spoken mm -hmm. on. So, um, and it is just, it's there's so many fascinating dynamics to it because I think you're right that um, it's such a, basketball is such a superstar driven league so i mean you mm -hmm. know uh on the flip side you know um uh more so in baseball but it's in basketball as well there's a lot of guys that are working uh not maybe paycheck to paycheck but are a month or two away from defaulting on their mortgage um right and so you know uh it's very easy in some ways for those guys that are on the top and made their way to the top to have those conversations when these other folks are not. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, uh, you know, I think it's, we're seeing in some ways where the good ownership lies. I, I'm struck by, um, in my cycling world, which cycling, by the way, is in need of a riders union and they have uh, really struggled because they do not have one. Um, mm -hmm. um, and so it's been fascinating that uh, my favorite team, who we've talked about here, Mitchelton Scott, formerly Oracle Green Edge, uh, had uh, reached an agreement with another owner, or not uh, owner, but a sponsor, and that all fell apart recently. Uh, and this guy, Jerry Ryan, who started the team, kind of exerted his control and said, we're not going to do that. Uh, they had announced jerseys and everything, uh, and mm -hmm. it all fell apart. Um, and you read more into it, and you learn that, well, Jerry Ryan's been paying um, full salary for all the riders and comp and salary, uh, a percentage of salary to all the support staff throughout this. Whereas a lot of these teams are down to 20, 30% of their normal salary. So it's just, I think, 
you see who those good owners are, um, and you know uh, you uh, you see who's trying to exploit everything. And Major League Baseball is coming down on the wrong side of a lot of things here. Mm-hmm. I was I was struck. I, you probably know this, but um, I've been doing a little bit of reading before this. Uh, you know, this whole stuff last year with these players not getting paid what they were trying to get paid and taking mm-hmm. so long for these contracts to work out. I was not aware that there's this history of collusion among teams to drive down prices and free agency for many, many years in the past that uh, only sets the stage for that to be the case in the future again. So that uh, I uh, was not aware that Major League Baseball had quite that reputation for uh, negative ownership. And so that points to another uh, actually two things that I, I, I find really fascinating uh, about this whole dynamic between unions, owners, players, and the public is how difficult it is to understand and how complex it is and connecting that with the fact that complexity, especially in my opinion in, in the realm of entertainment, is something – fans in general are not looking for Mm -mm. and uh, would prefer not to have anything to do with. And so in that way, something like contract negotiations, um, something like the relationship between a union and owners is something that does not fit into the escapism paradigm of sports, right? And so in that way, how we generate knowledge about these things uh, is, is fraught with that. Um, it's, it's not secret, but it's, it's just hard to access. Like we're not allowed in the meetings, mm-hmm. right? The negotiations between unions and owners is something we have to be uh, informed on. And then we're in that space where, well, who is informing us? Is it the players? Is it the players that weren't at the meeting? Is it the player executives? Is it the owners who actually very rarely say anything and lean on the commissioners to do their dirty work for them? And so in that way, it's all kind of shrouded in secrecy and it's difficult to know what's going on. And when something's difficult to kn- when it's difficult to know what's going on and when what is being discussed is difficult to understand, it seems like a space that is ripe for those that have power to exploit it. And so I think that's Mm -hmm. like the history of unions becomes important. And this being the second thing that I think is interesting in this context is that uh, unions are, are brand new. I like depending, right? Like depending on the time frame you want to put around them, uh, we can even call professional sports kind of brand new. Mm. Uh, And with the exponential growth of money in sports, it's it's even more new, if it's possible to say that grammatically correct. But um, I guess the point is that it, it changes quickly, and so that adds that another yet another layer of complexity to it all. That it's changing very quickly. This is pretty new, and it's difficult to understand, and it's shrouded in secrecy. So accessing the significance and importance of what's happening between these power dynamics with unions, owners, players, and the public, it's just really hard to get to, you know? Yeah, and I think that um, several things there. One, um, you know, I think the the conversation about unions is so complex, um, 
and getting more so all the time. Uh, you know, I think generally you and I would come down in favor of unions, but they have some major, major issues. And I think we see that rearing its head right now with this absurd situation these police unions are uh, following mm-hmm. through on right now. I mean, it can be a very destructive force in many ways. I mean, I, I look at it um, as uh, they're so often conservative forces. They're trying to conserve power as opposed mm-hmm. to um, create something new. And that's, uh, that's rarely uh, a positive thing, uh, except when it's in some ways couched against something that's even more powerful as a way of conserving something that's trying to be taken away and uh, mm-hmm. by those with more power um but it, so that's a very complex conversation even though again i think uh, you and I, I won't speak for you but come down largely on the side of the unions in many of these conversations um mm-hmm. but uh, i think there's another conversation that i think this is all becoming much more complicated by the social media side of this that mm-hmm. you know in 94 95 with this major league baseball strike or even you know i don't recall this because apparently i wasn't paying attention to the nhl but the, you know nhl losing a season um to a strike um mm-hmm. we didn't have access to players in the same way that we do now we didn't get to see the divisions between the players we didn't get to see the you know their anger at owners and so in some ways i feel like you know if major league baseball in some ways had played this correctly um this wouldn't even be an issue because we they'd they'd be saying all right we're still just observing the situation um Mm -hmm. and trying to figure it out but you know when you have players on live stream talking about how this is they're not going to come back for what's being offered and you know players tweeting about these things um and that outward anger, then you uh, all of a sudden that conversation, that complexity becomes brought out and something that fans have to deal with. Because I think we forget that, you know, these kind of ugly negotiations happen every single time a CBA comes up. And it, mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, there's a, at least a 50-50 chance, it seems like, that there's going to be a, a, a lockout or a strike of some length or severity given any CBA negotiation. So I think mm-hmm. we just forget that. And maybe we're not being allowed to forget that with the access that we have at this point. That's such a great point. I don't know if you watched the 30 for 30 on McGuire and Sosa. Not yet. I, I plan to, but not yet. Uh, my 22nd review is that it's not all that great. <laughs> um, it's just not that interesting to me. Mm. Um, the The really compelling parts were talking about how – the Balco stuff and it becoming it in McGuire admitting to juicing while he was doing it affected how we remember it hmm. uh, was kind of the part that was for me the most interesting part of the documentary as opposed to they literally show you 250 home runs and watching a highlight of a home run will always fascinate me because it's just not that interesting to me. <laughs> it's not. Uh, um yeah it's literally just like uh yeah there's no more commentary necessary on that but uh at any point the documentary attempted to make the argument that sosa and mcguire saved baseball from the frustration of fans after the 94 95 strike Hmm. uh i actually thought that was a little bit of a stretch um 
but maybe it's true and I, I'm sure there's uh, a money argument to be made that it did that it brought a lot of money back into baseball and made it possible for people to make a lot more money but I, I think the point that you make is that um, were there a LeBron James in baseball in 94, 95 that could have gone on Instagram and written a really long post about what happened in the CBA negotiations that we would have looked at the whole thing very differently because even the way it was covered in the documentary, uh, everyone was mad at everyone from the public's perspective. Like the news was putting out this story that baseball players are millionaires, owners are millionaires and they, they're fighting over peanuts. Like, right. Even Bill Clinton was weighing in on it. And, as we know now, I think because of social media, we realize that actually the reason these unions exist aren't necessarily for the top paid players, but it's for like the minor mm-hmm. leaguers mm-hmm. that have gotten absolutely screwed in the last couple of weeks um, because of how the owners are handling these lower paid um, kind of peons from their perspective, right? That don't mean anything to the organization, but yeah, if we were to have an inside view to those 94, 95 meetings, I think we would remember it much differently. Well, and it is, you know, you bring up the money question. I think that that's the other part that's so fascinating for me right now is just, um, you know, we're, st- we're I think we're a little better. Maybe I'm wrong, but I hope we're a little better as a society about understanding the complexity of these arguments. But um, in terms of, you know, uh, this is about millionaires arguing with millionaires about things. Uh, I mean, first it's millionaires arguing against billionaires, but beyond that, right, um, right. it's uh, we're we're in a weird climate right now. You know, we're um, I don't think the uh, pardon my French, but the shit hasn't really hit the fan yet with what the economic impact of this pandemic is going to be. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of it is being masked by this extended unemployment and some other factors that are going into that, the PPP loans that are out there. Um, so we're not, uh, we haven't seen the bottom of what this is going to look like, um, in terms of impact on individuals and that, you know, the, a lot of that stuff will run out here in the next month and a half. Um, and it's going to, you know, right now, I think it's already tough to have this argument when there's a, you know, 10% plus unemployment in the country. Um, and it's going to get even worse when I think there's a real possibility of, you know, uh, a breadline type situation here in the next uh, in the next six months or so. Um, and so that that puts the whole money conversation in a new light. It also maybe lends a lot of credence even more so to what Kyrie said, right? Or at mm-hmm. least anyone that's willing to entertain that question of should we be playing Um, yeah, and that makes me think of how easy it is for owners to justify themselves by saying we're offering something like the United States, it's pastime, right? Like in times of trouble, we play baseball. Like, do we, do we still feel good about that argument? Or are you just putting that out there? Cause you're going to make millions of dollars while other people are suffering immensely. Uh, and to what extent is that ethical and appropriate? The other side of the money for me is what is a union when members of that union are so wealthy Mm -hmm. uh, or have access to that much wealth? And it also 
kind of reiterating the point you were making earlier is what do we make of a conservative voices appropriating unions, which was initially the life-saving grace of labor movements, of the poorest among us, those that are working and toiling and making their living while capitalists at the top are making millions, right? So mm-hmm. it, 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 it's such a good point to say that um, it, in theory, uh, I, I can't think of many things I would support more than a, a labor union. But to what extent is a union a labor union? If like, To what extent does the amount of money you're making as it kind of relates proportionally to what like minimum wage is, uh, can your union still be viewed as what the original labor unions were? It's a fascinating question. Yeah, and I mean, I think you look back at some of these these histories of you know, the AFL-CIO, you know, from their early mm-hmm. points in some ways, you know, there were some uh, amazing things that they did in terms of, you know, the, they really had no reason in some ways to get involved in the civil rights movement, but they did because they saw it as uh, a part and part of their cause. They saw, you know, they were, uh, you know, this idea of um, solidarity uh, amongst these people was a really powerful thing. And I think that, Unions these days are perhaps, uh, particularly in these kind of things, you know, thinking about police unions and sports unions, uh, uh, a tool to protect. I mean, they're almost like an HOA in some ways, I guess I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, like they're they're there to protect the interests of people that already have fairly protected interests, which, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it's not the worst thing in, in Major League Baseball or NBA because they, they, they really are – fighting for something but at the same time it's um how do we as a society feel about that much energy going into fighting about something that's only going to affect uh, you know 400 people right um right. when it gets even more you know I, I saw this week that uh, the nba coaches union has some issues with the agreement uh which of course you know i, I don't know how many members are a member of that union but it can't be particularly many people Right. Um, and so how do we understand unions in a context where they're only representing a few as opposed to uh, when they try and represent or, or where I guess uh, I would argue intended to represent uh, a mass of individuals? Right, right. Yeah, so that – yeah, I, d- I don't know where to go with that other than to think about how – Unions were name-called communist Mm -hmm. for so long of the 20th century, post-industrialization. I don't think anyone's calling LeBron James a communist. Nope. Right? (laughs) Um, So what does that mean for how we understand unions in the United States of America when we put it in that historical context that – the the number one way to combat a union was to name-call them communist. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know what to do with that. <clears throat> and it's just, I think it's so complex. I mean, it's just, it's hard to fathom uh, it all in some ways because I think that there's there's the potential for so much good uh, and we see it do so much good, but um, where is the line and where is it okay? I mean, there's just something, there's something so 
strange about seeing the people on the right now not having any issues with police unions. I mean, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and yet they would, they would fight, you know, I, through my work, I see businesses that don't want to have anything to do with anybody that's ever worked with the union before, uh, because mm-hmm. they are scared to death of it. And, mm-hmm. you know, on, on some level I get it, but man, that's, uh, it's a, it's an important part of a functioning ecosystem in my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, police unions is a great example. Uh, I always think too about the the more conservative sports like baseball. Uh, thinking about all the Republican members of the MLB Players Association, mm-hmm. like, do you know you're part of like what was originally a socialist organization? Uh, and the only reason you have this power is because of socialists that have fought for you to have that power in the history of this country uh, in Western Europe. So I, that that's an interesting part of it. It is. And I, you know, at the end of the day, I think I'm coming back to this same question that Kyrie has raised um, about whether we should be playing right now. And I think more and more I'm coming down on the side of, you know, if these labor negotiations are this difficult, um, uh, we need to support those players that need this money to make it through, but that maybe we shouldn't be playing right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think I fall on that side of uh, there's just still it, it seems like such an undertaking and such an expenditure of energy and resources and its effect on the public consciousness. I I, I don't know if I'm convinced that it's just worth it yet. Well, no, and I think you know there's some there's some you know I think a lot of people are thinking about it in terms of like. You know, as a player, going to get sick and die from this. But I think that there's a, you know, there's a whole level of complexity beyond that that we haven't really seen much because, as you mentioned, we in the sports world don't really want to see that complexity in our sports. But I, you know, some of the stuff I've seen has a lot to do with, you know, players are worried about permanent, even if they recover from it, only having you know ninety percent lung capacity. So what what is their ability to perform? Mm-hmm. for what kind of contract ramifications are they going to have for mm-hmm. anything like that what are, you know being away from your family for 3 months is it a uh, is a burden that is should not be understated in this conversation right. um right you know it's just there's a there's a lot of it um especially for those that aren't making a bunch of money out of it you know if i were making if i the nba told me i had to come back and they were going to pay me um uh, you know, $35,000 to go and stay in this for, you know, if I'm an NBA player, I, I probably have real conversations with my family about whether that's something that's uh, worth going to go do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. It, 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 it necessitates asking like, why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. Uh, NBA, <laughs> everyone, why are you doing this? Explain it to me. Uh, and improve to the public that um, you're using a value system that we can be proud of to make this decision other than the fact that you're losing like $100 million a week um, by not playing. Well, I think that that's where it's even more complex in some ways because I think, you know, I, I, um, I my thoughts about LeBron, notwithstanding, um, 
I think that there's got to be a part of him that is saying we want to come back because he knows that they have a, a very real shot and perhaps might even be the favorite to win the finals this year. If this were last year, I, I don't know what his response would be, but I have to think it wouldn't mm-hmm. be quite the same. Uh, and so there's right. that level of players that like want to come back because this is their chance to win a championship, and there are others that that don't have that really as an option. There's ones that are fighting for new contracts that are worried about mm-hmm. those kind of conversations. Um, you know, personally, I think the the thing that I would push, you know, they were early on, there were some creative things that they tried that were less than effective, you know, the, um, the horse contest and things like that. Right. You know, we're getting to a point where I think people would accept uh, watching a game of basketball right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but the risk of doing a series or a season seems really high, particularly when I think the inevitability is that something like what happened with the Phillies happens in the NBA and you mm-hmm. have a team that can't even play anymore because they don't have enough players. And what if that's the Lakers? What do you do in that? I mean, what, how do you have a championship if the Lakers have to forfeit uh, three games in a playoff series because they don't have enough players that don't test positive for COVID? Right. Um, but even notwithstanding that, I think there's amazing space to still promote your league and promote your game Right. Why doing it in ways that are much easier to control. You know, I think if you were to have, you know, a weekend, a three-day tournament um, or, or a series of three-day tournaments where you could control the environments for a week before and test everybody several times and then send them home to their families, like there's a, there's a very compelling way to make that a fun way to watch basketball or a you know do a uh, do some pickup baseball i don't know what it is but there's some compelling ways where you could actually play the sport now without having to go and do all of this other stuff to make it a season uh that i think would be worth exploring mm-hmm. for these leagues right now and maybe it's a matter of that the players associations don't want to go down that level because their stars want to have a championship or i don't know what it is but uh, that that argument is is convoluted at this point, but I do think it's worth noting that there are some ways to make these things happen without needing to do the money grab of a, of a full season. Right. I, I think, think golf point... is a great example of that. You know, like they have this, these concrete tournaments for four days, you know, right. if, if four guys get it on the Thursday and they have to cancel a tournament, um, okay, well that's fine, but we can come back, you know, two weeks later and do it all exactly. over again. Um, yeah. And that's just yeah. There's no there's no way to do that if your only plan is to have a season, right? Yeah, and it's maybe I I'm not one to give a lot of leeway to Major League Baseball, <laughs> but I guess it's the part of it all I sympathize for them is that their logistics, uh, the list of things they have to do logistically to make it happen seems to truly be like maybe the most complex Mm -hmm. uh, as far as like number of people, geography, all all sorts of things. Um, So I am sympathetic to that. Whereas like you said, golf seems to have a pretty easy way through this. Well, and I think that, you know, there's, this is also a way that the leagues could even, uh, you know, uh, amplify the voices, the minority voices in some ways, you know, I'm thinking like if the NBA were to right now uh, have a, a weekend tournament that was entirely focused on amplifying black lives matter that w- mm-hmm. I, I can only imagine the impact that that would have both from a, uh, a f- we want to watch basketball, but also like a, a, a political, uh, 
activism standpoint and how much mm-hmm. uh, the players might be able to get behind that, you know, who knows, but I think that there are creative solutions out there that we're just not even, mm-hmm. not even on the table because of how much money is available and how much money people are worried about losing. Exactly. Um, yep. Money, 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 money. Exactly. Money. Which makes me want to point out a couple of things I came across and just looking back in the history of some of this stuff. Uh, this is just a smattering of useless information, maybe. Uh, the first players' union was started by Manchester United hmm. in 1907. Uh, they Part of the reason they were doing it is because it was literally impossible to play just soccer for a living. Hmm. Um, the average player salary was uh, 12 pounds a year. Which in 2012 uh, money that was 328 pounds a year um, to play soccer. So mm-hmm. literally impossible. Um, another thing I found really interesting that I came across is how effective the MLS Players Union has been. Hmm. So uh, looking at a couple editorials and then some of the data for myself, uh, the things they have achieved since so they were established in 2003. Uh, They have been just massively effective, and it's not just salaries, but overall uh, experience of players in the league Mm. as far as like um, what kind of hotels they stay in, what kind of food uh, they can eat, um, things that are truly necessary for like um, playing well, right? So saying like this is how you make your money, we realize that a lot of you don't make a lot of money. Uh, like with the average salary being something like $68,000 a year. It's, it's like in many ways, this is a very middle-class job for mm-hmm. most of you. Uh, and so in that way, like giving the things you need to do your job well in a workplace. Um, so if it would be interesting, there's a whole bunch of stuff there to look at. And then I was also interested that uh, UFC has completely squashed uh, mm-hmm. a few attempts at forming a union. And it seems like of all the sports in the world that need a union, it's yes. UFC. Yes. Um, and I was struck by the average UFC fighter making less than $14,000 a year. Um, so around uh, 13600 a year fighting in UFC, uh, which is probably one of the most dangerous professions <laughs> anyone could take on in the world. Uh, and there's no retirement plans and, most, uh, and there's no health insurance. Good so grief. that's freaking insane to Dana me. Dana White is an awful human being. Awful, yeah. As if I needed any more ammunition against UFC. Well, and it's it's just so fascinating just to po- juxtapose that with boxing, which is of course, you know, mm-hmm. arguably as barbaric as MMA is, and yet the boxers have all of the power mm-hmm. in the boxing world. I mean, they, you know, yes, their promoters have a ton of power, but the boxers uh, have a lot of power to choose who they work with, do all that kind of stuff. Whereas exactly. in the MMA, you have no, like, if you want to do it, you have to do, use uh, Dana White's rules and he, mm-hmm. he ain't having it. Yep. There's never going to be a Floyd Mayweather in, uh, in the MMA world. Yeah. Which I did see that he made 278 million in 2018. Yeah. Absurd. Floyd Mayweather. Absurd. Yep. <laughs> well, you got anything else? I don't think I have anything else here other than that just that 
not that anyone that has any kind of power is listening, but just to say, we really, uh, I, kn- I know Kyle earlier said he's enjoyed watching golf, but uh, I, I don't need sports to come back. So I hope no one is uh, paying attention to uh, us and thinking that we need sports to come back. I am, uh, I, in some ways, am enjoying uh, mm-hmm. the rest of my life and just uh, don't feel the need to rush back. And even when it comes back, I haven't found it very compelling. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if there were ever a time to take a, a stand for safety, take a stand for politics, whatever it is, this is the time in which to do it. Amen. Well, do you have any trivia for us this week? I do. Uh, I forget so what I our believe... last question was. Yeah, so Serena Williams has been named Player of the Year seven nice. times. That is not the most. Who has eight? Uh, and the answer was Steffi Graf. So this week's question. Mike Trout signed a 12-year, $465 million contract that pays him $219,000 per game. Interestingly, that's second most for per game salary. Hmm. So the most per game salary is $222,000. And I'm wondering if you have a guess for who that is. Interesting. I mean, I have not paid much attention to baseball Mm -hmm. salaries other than to know that it's probably not Harper or Machado because I know that their per year stuff was less than that. Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't even know who else would be in that category. This is how little I know about Major League Baseball right now. Me too. I would not have gotten this. All right. All right. Well, I guess I'll have to wait. But let me, I'll throw a name at you. Um, uh, Aaron Judge, who's, I'm sure, not the answer because he's been, uh, (laughs) he's too new in the league to get that contract. But um, yeah. I I think he's on the list somewhere. But um, let hmm. me look real quick. All right, so tune in next week. I can't right. find Aaron Judge. Okay. Well, I'm intrigued by that one. Someone getting paid more than Mike. It's hard to believe some might be more valuable, but uh, uh, I'll have to wait and see. Yep. All right, y'all. Well, thanks for listening to Sports and Society this week. We'll hopefully be back next week um, talking about something else. Uh, in the meantime, have a great week. Give us a rating and review wherever you listen to us. And thanks so much, Kyle. Thanks, man. Pay attention to the voices that are doing the framing. What we're talking about is the consumerism. Withheld and allotted only. Nobody's calling LeBron Black Jesus. I was a huge Dikembe Mutombo fan.